Hi, this is Kate Briggs, and this is the second episode of the Fitzcarraldo Editions podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Fitzcarraldo Editions podcast. My name is Jennifer Hodgson, and I'm talking today to Kate Briggs. Kate is a writer and translator who's been based in Rotterdam since 2016, where she teaches at the Piet Swart Institute. She is the translator of two volumes of Roland Barthes' notes for lecture courses at the Collège de France, How to Live Together in 2013, and The Preparation of the Novel in 2011, both of which were published by Columbia University Press. With Roberto Negro, she is co-translator of Michel Foucault's Introduction to Kant's Anthropology, which was published by Semia Text in 2008. She's published four experimental texts of literary criticism, Exercise in Pathetic Criticism and the Nabokov Paper, which was co-devised with Lucrezia Ruscio, which appeared with information as material in 2011 and 2013. Story, the Story in It was published by A. Modern in 2015, and Entertaining Ideas was published by Ma Bibliothèque in 2019. This Little Art, her book about literary translation and so much else, was published by Fitzcarraldo Editions in 2017. For it, she was awarded a Wyndham Campbell Prize for nonfiction in 2021. Her new book, The Long Form, about the forms of living and the forms of writing and again so much else, came out in April 2023. In This Little Art, Kate writes about Roland Barthes' tutor texts what she calls the supporting texts that become part of our personal canons, which we recognize ourselves in and feel recognized by, that send us looking out a pen to begin to write, that make writers out of readers. Kate's books have very much been that for me, and I am so pleased to be speaking to her today. Hello, Kate. <laughs> so um, I thought we might um, begin at the beginning. Why not? Um, there's that originary scene, isn't there? One of a few originary scenes in this little art um, that I like very much. And it's where your professor says to you, don't do translations and also write a monograph instead. And um, you go on to defy them on both counts, don't you? Um, and... Also, the, the, the fact of the writing and the translating to be twin-born like this seems to also be quite important to you. So I wonder if you could take us back to the start and tell us about how you came to both of them. Um, yes. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for starting there, actually. That's a really... Um, because that was a true story. I mean, there's a lot... Yeah. In this little art, is that you know, there's it's a non-fiction book, um, and that did happen, an encounter in the British Library, uh, and actually, what I didn't um, narrate the full story is that uh, he said, "Don't do translations." Um, also, he said, uh, "Don't." For some reason, the conversation developed, and I was talking. I think I responded to this by say, "He said, don't do translations," and I said something, but about how translation felt to me like a, a way of being sort of deeply intellectually challenged, you know, as a reader and a writer and a thinker. Um, 
at home. It, you know, I, I was, I think I, my response was rather than apply for a job, another job, because I'd just come to the end of a, a contract. Uh, I, I was making the argument that this was a way of um, reading and writing and thinking um, at home um, because I knew that I was uh, pregnant with my um, now eldest child. And, um, uh, and I think I, I may have even told him this. And he also said, or maybe, no, I can't have told him this because I think the second thing he said uh, unprompted was also don't, um, don't have children. I mean, not, not don't have children, but, but generally the phrasing was something like, you know, academics. Because at that time, I think he perceived me as wanting to be a career um, academic. Um, generally wait, you know, generally wait until their late 30s or so. I was 29 um, before they have the, you know. So there was an extraordinary set of um, instructions to receive uh, unexpectedly in the in the British Library, um, and obviously these things were already underway. I was already translating, and I was already having a child. And this was, you know, almost fifteen years ago now. And I think the 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 landscape of advice and instruction um, around both activities, perhaps um, whether it's possible to um, have a you know, the sort of visibility of translation has certainly changed, I think. And, and I hope also the the advice to from sort of elder colleagues to younger colleagues might have changed around whether or not to have children or combine an intellectual life with having or a creative life with having children. So that it was a really powerful scene and, uh, and uh, yeah, and a determining scene. But as you said, you know, I was already sort of defying it in a way. Um, and for me, to sort of answer your question, translation came, I'd been thinking, I wrote a PhD about um, translation, uh, but um, which seems to be my my way into many subjects, including the novel, in that I wrote it um, sort of theory first. And so, you know, so I was very interested in the sort of philosophical conundrums posed by translation, that question of, you know, which... Um, people have worried about the degree to which it's even possible theoretically, even though, of course, it's, you know, materially happening all the time. So I'd spent sort of four or five years um, pondering translation on the abstract level, but without actually really having done any. And um, and that start, you know, start. I started to feel that perhaps that was a problem, like to have any credibility to make any kind of pronouncement. I had this intuition that it was this sort of deeply creative process, but I hadn't actually tested that claim for myself. And uh, and so I came at what sort of seeking out translation projects, um, at the, you know, to begin with in a kind of ad hoc way, like with three friends who needed a press release translated or um, an interview translated or, and it was through friendship and a kind of um, unlikely set of circumstances that I translated. I was brought into the project with Roberto that you mentioned. Um, and translation so offered me in, you know, in one sense that a kind of practical, not solution, um, it was not really a solution to like how to, uh, you know, how to earn a living, but it was a solution to how do I continue to read it right at home, given that I'm, I'll be entering this period of of being at home um and it also yeah it also was a i guess a way of 
at that time I was starting to wonder whether becoming an academic and writing into those spaces of um, the, the forms that are available to you as a as an academic were really the spaces that I wanted to be writing into. I found it very difficult to produce articles um, and to produce arguments in the way that I felt was expected of me. Um, and translation also felt like a space of of working and thinking that was um, somehow sort of protected me for a while from having to having to do that was offered a sort of path out of the space of uh, academia and as indeed it has you know um, I'm not a, I don't work in a university that's a long answer to set of answers to your question Jen but it was it was an originary scene that encounter you're right, you're absolutely right yeah it really seems to have been because you know um what seems to unfurl from it, from what you're saying, is like so much of what continues to preoccupy you now, that set of ideas around, you know, where work happens, where making things happen happens, the importance of uh, doing, of process, rather than, uh, you know, thinking in the abstract generality about, um, you know, art in the domestic sphere, art at home, um, are meeting you where you are, you know, so to speak, and uh, taking on the contours of your life and, you know, that, that kind of permeable, permeable border uh, between the writing and the living, um, I think. And with that in mind, I, I want you to show us your desk <laughs> or indeed your settee as we're sat on now. Um, I'm, I'm interested, I'm always interested in um, speaking to writers well, you know, lifting lifting the curtain a little bit, demystifying the process a bit, and especially for someone who um, who you know works across uh, different forms with different hats on, I wonder if you might talk to us a little about that work that happens at home and and how it happens. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, so the desk has changed changed maybe two years ago. Up until two years ago, the desk was in the living room. Um, so it, the work only happened when everyone else was out, uh, really, you know, I don't, you know, at school, let's say, um, uh, yeah. But then two years ago, I do now have a space in my home, which is my, my space, a writing, you know, space for my work. It doesn't, um, have a door yet. <laughs> it has like a, like a, uh, a bit of fabric, um, in, in the place of a door. It would be great to have a door. Um, that was like a last, but maybe it's it's interesting that, that the door still hasn't um, materialized or I, I haven't pushed for you know, putting the door there. Um, again, I think I prefer, I prefer to, to work. Um, I do really enjoy working at home. I like being around my books. I like being able to make a coffee or like, you know, be relaxed, not having to go out of my home space to work. But I also prefer it when no one else is in the house. And then the conditions for when no one else is in the house are fairly limited in the sense that I work um, from sort of 8.30 or so. When I'm not teaching, it's not a teaching day. I will work from yeah 8.30 or so when everyone leaves and then until 2, which is when that I then set off to go and pick up my youngest. And then on a Wednesday, uh, he has a half day. So unless he's doing something else, I leave at like half 11, 12. So it really is mornings. And and then, as I say, if I'm teaching, then 
then then that's like becomes instead of five mornings it becomes three morning or two morning I don't really work at the weekends because of unless it's there's an urgency of finishing something because of family and all the other stuff you have to do you know but um so it's quite short intensive bursts of work um I guess but which might explain slowness you know in terms of these projects I've been wondering about that whether whether it's to do with my that those you know that sense of if I had more time if I had all the time in the world if COVID hadn't happened for example with this recent book the long form because of homeschooling which meant obviously everyone was in the house all the time um but I, I don't actually think it would have made a huge I like to tell myself that it wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference. I think I do need quite a lot of time to understand what it is that I want to do and to arrive at a, a kind of form that holds the things I'd like the the work to do. Um, so I don't know whether... I'm interested to see if I can possibly speed up. <laughs> but I don't... I think I just... I think I just need that time and I think... I need mornings. I love morning. I mean, I think people have different relationships to different times of the day. For me, it's all about the morning and that sense of total possibility. And and then it, that's where, you know, and then I, there's no way I'm going to open my computer, my laptop to like go into a space of fiction or writing at like 4 p.m. I don't know how it works for you, but for me, that's that that's just the energy is is dissipating and running elsewhere. It is this preciousness of, of morning. So if I could just extend mornings, that would help me. But of course, like you can't because a day a day does its thing, you know. Um, and in, you know the desk is quite mess. It's, it's a bit of a mess actually. Yeah, to be honest, the desk is a bit. But it's a mess that really makes sense to me. Um, and I like not having to explain it to anyone else. And I really like you know for the last two years of it not being on display, so people can come round to my home without me needing to account for what's on the desk because it's somewhat private but with a curtain that, only with a curtain. that curtain yeah that's uh that's perfect that's exactly what I wanted you to say in a way what I would have expected there oh really I don't yeah. know that it, it there being a gap but it being made of made of a you know piece of fabric that can be swept aside that that feels quite important um, and it's so interesting to hear you talking about wanting to go faster, you know, um, given that, um, that, you know, your work is so much about slowness and slowness, um, as with so much else in your work, not simply in terms of, you know, the slowing down of time, but, but in this kind of like expanded sense, this kind of like, um, being stopped in your tracks, this this call to attention, this this pausing. So it's, uh, it's strange to hear you talk about wanting to go faster. To be honest, I wonder if I if I I myself want to go faster, or if it's just that sense of you know existing in a you know in a world in a society in a sense in a kind of in relation to a rhythm of an expectation to be a bit faster, to be you know that we all feel even if even if we're not being told this by the people who who we you know who who care for our work <laughs> you know I'm not being told this by my editor my publisher at all you know remarkably it's extraordinary the 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 time I'm granted and the patience that I've received um but I think there's still this sense of um productivity 
an expectation around productivity and what productivity looks like, you know, and it does tend to look like products, you know, doesn't it? Like, you know, things that are kind of have a present as accomplished and achieved and somewhat finalized. And, um, and I think I am, yeah, indeed interested in what you describe as slowness, but also has this question of like, it's above, it's process, but it's also, um, not, yeah, things are somewhat unachieved, unaccomplished. I mean, if that makes sense. I mean, I feel like with both books um, that were published by well, all the all the publications you mentioned, but uh, maybe especially uh, this little art and the long form, there's a sense of wanting to um, present or materialize or make a make a space for the sort of unfolding of a process um, without arriving at a place where that that uh, stops. Um, you know, the books could have continued. I know they're already quite long, but they could have continued. I feel that there is there is more to say. There's more expansion that could happen. Um, so, yeah, going faster, maybe that's just me sort of speaking to a script, the script of capitalism or something that I, I in my, in my, in my life and my, and my work, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I feel very grateful for not having to actually um, perform to take time, you know, to take the time that it takes. Um, I think that is rare, you know, to be able to feel like a book, it can take as long as it takes without that sense of, you know, deliver it. Um, and um, that sense of the the books as being not the, the, not the culmination of a process, but the kind of outcome of a process that's ongoing um, leads me to a thought that I um, have had before about your work, but um, had definitely the last couple of weeks kind of having that lovely experience of being really immersed in it, where I was thinking, Kate's doing that thing that, um, you know, I find that all the writers that I love most do. And uh, sometimes when I say this to them, when I'm lucky enough to to have the opportunity, some of them kind of hate this, but I'm going to say it to you and see, right? Well, I'm like, Kate's doing the thing where she's always writing the same book. Yeah, that's okay. I can, t I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. I mean, I had a, I had a beautiful question from uh, a student. Um, I was doing one of those, uh, something during COVID of um, being beamed into a space of education and being asked questions. Translators um, who'd read the book on translation and were interested about interested in it and interested in developing their own practices as translators. And it was in response. I can't even remember how this this person, young person phrased it, but it was um, maybe it's, that's the thing. It's like something that's completely obvious to anyone else, but just I was sort of slowly dawning on me that uh, I'm I'm still the the but lectures that you mentioned um, in English the preparation of the novel and how to live together and also the neutral which I didn't translate but that forms a the sort the sort of that triangle of um, of, of of teaching um, at the end the sort of last last years of his life those questions that I mean probably is because they are um, 
such inexhaustible questions like how to live together is that not like the question also for me the novel the question of which is you know the way that's phrased in the lecture course it's the question of the novel but that's arrived at through this detour via haiku by via poetry via short forms it's a question of form um that's being asked and how you arrive at form um and what different what 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 are the affordances of these different forms that are available to us and what can we how can we act upon them work with them um so those lecture courses that i i wrote two uh, translations of them in the kind of standard sense of of hopefully a a reliable and accurate <laughs> as far as you know um as i was capable at the time um translations for readers of that work who are not able to read that work in french and they are they match the lecture courses in terms of quantity you know in the sense that you know a, a sentence of of the of or a note of Roland Barthes becomes like a note in my english i then feel like i've and this is what this uh, this this young person's question allowed me to to sort of see and say out loud i think both this little art and the long form are efforts to kind of claim more space and more time to write out and 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 also you know resituate because you know my the space of my thinking is clearly not the space of Roland Barthes thinking and and it and it's you know and it and it and it's not solely these books are not solely written with their face turned towards those lecture courses they are also looking towards other writers and thinkers and looking towards other sort of um life situations and questions but i think they both could be read as as expanded translations further translations of of the of that work and i wonder i mean the long form is a phrase from the preparation of the novel it's buts synonym or shorthand not longhand <laughs> for for the longer hand for the for the novel and i wonder whether um having written two books that still working through those questions whether that means that i've um exhausted that now and i'm now you know i'm initiated and beginning to translate again in a way that i haven't for some years in a concentrated manner and to work on translations of a writer called Ellen Bessette um and i will, i i feel my intuition is that translating her work um which are these kind of extraordinary lineated novels um will initiate another body of work it seems to be that's the way it goes for me like translation is intensely generative of other works which i hope exist on their own terms in the sense that you know you don't need i hope you don't need to be like a you know a horn fan girl a boy or person to engage find something in these books but um but in terms of my own process um i am writing and re rethinking and revisiting and returning to questions which i find are deeply mysterious and fascinating and important so i take the if that that if that's true it's just like all the same you know it's yeah i i that doesn't I don't hate that Jen. I I I think that's quite astute actually. I meant it as the most profound compliment. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to to pick up on there. Um I wanted to ask first of all 
when I um, glance through um, the the reviews and the the, the writing that was uh, done at the time about this little art, one of the things that came up again and again um, was this idea that the book um, defies categorization. And um, and you know, I was like, I mean, yeah, yeah. If if we mean um, if we mean that it does something called innovation, if we mean that it that it um, you know thinks through and does form in new ways, yeah. But um, I'm also not really sure what it means. And I wonder what you make of a remark like that. And um, you know whether whether that seems to 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 uh, to cover what you were doing and whether that was kind of in your mind while you were making it. That's a great question. Um, I do you know what I think I was doing? Oh, that's you know these things that could be thoughts that come to you. Just sort of test them live in this in this context, see how they sound. But I think when I mentioned earlier about kind of arriving at um, translation like theory first or philosophy first or whatever, I do find um, I get I I do like thinking about, for want of a better phrase for it, like you know. Big, you know, big ideas. I, I, you know, I think you share this as well. Like, you know, there's an excitement around, you know, we're quite happy to sit and read a book of narratology, you know, of a, of a Friday night, you know, like, and to be thinking about what is, you know, what is the novel, let's say, you know, I, 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 I that sort of level of abstraction, uh, I find it quite, I find it thrilling. I find it, it, um, it engages me as a reader, as a, you know, as a person, I, um, and I find, I think what I was, to bring that back to the books, I think something I was trying to do was to make um, the sort of unfolding of, of, of at the level of um, ideas, which are also sort of being pushed through situations of, of life and, and, you know, materials and, and bodies and, you know, um, sort of made local, you know, sort of general, general big general abstract questions made local, localised in order to sort of look at them um, and sort of see them differently. Uh, but I think part of the sort of impulse to do that was to t kind of make the unfolding of, of something like a um, like an argument feel like dramatic, feel um, to have narrative, to have a kind of a narrative drive and drama. I mean, the opening, the whole opening sequence of this little art is it runs in order to land on the thought that a translation is a book that's written twice, which is a very obvious thing, maybe possibly like a very obvious thing to say. Like, of course, you know, you can very quickly be like, yeah, yeah, of course, I get it. You know, translators write books again, you know, they, um, but for me, I find that, I find that kind of really provoking and, and mysterious and sort of exciting so how how to how to arrive at saying that obvious or maybe sort of commonplace thought or reality um in such a way that when it lands or when it's stated again it actually resonates it actually has that charge of mystery or, or like a discovery like discovering something that you already knew um again so that 
it actually does something different to your sensibility. And I think in the long form, which doesn't um, have a great deal of plot in the usual sense, but um, one of its dramas is to try and ask the question, why, why, um, why are there essays in Tom Jones, you know, one of the first English language, or self-declared, one of the first novels, although that's not a term that Henry Fielding used, but, you know, it's a term that is sort of put on that book of, you know, he's sort of self-consciously inaugurating a new province of writing, and it's a province made of fiction and essays. And this question is, so why are the, why are the essays in there when even Fielding is saying you can skip them if you want to? They're kind of like, maybe these are the boring bits, the, the uninteresting bits. But that question, why, why, what is this, what is, the, what is the work of the essays? What are they doing? That's the question that gets sort of um, phrased in the long form and then takes quite a long time to arrive at a, a sort of response to it um, in, in sort of narrative terms. And I wanted to try and use the tools, all the resources of um, that were are available to me as a, as a writer to try and achieve pacing and tension and suspense and, and feeling at the level not only of what's happening to characters, whether they're real people in this little art or possible people in the long form, but to bring those resources to bear at the level of like the unfolding of ideas. So it's a really long way of saying, coming back to your question of like, what, do, how do I, how do I take this sort of uncategorizable sort of descript description? I think it's, it's more about um, that. That is m my project, um, and so I'm interested in what, yeah, what are the resources? Whether it's page breaks or whatever, it, you know, what are the resources available to me to to try and achieve that order of um, of making what might sound like an unlikely uh, plot line compelling. <laughs> you know, and compelling in a way that that when when we land in a place or when we get somewhere where where something is is stated, something as obvious as novels are novels are of length. It's like I know I know that like of course novels are of length. You look up the de definition of the novel and it's like it's like long because one of the terms. But that's just totally you know there is a kind of genuine wonderment on my part around that, and I want to try and try and see if I can generate that um, in in the books. Does that make any sense, Jen? Or... Perfect sense, okay. Kit. Okay. I mean, that thing of being fascinated by, you know, the there's like big questions, you know, ab yeah, obsessive filled narratologist, happily filled narratologist over here, you know, and I'm obsessed by those questions of what are these forms, where do they come from, you know, um, but the thing for me, um, and you know, when I first read this little art, I mean, I'll show you my marginalia, I was like, how is she doing this? <laughs> you know, that kind of like punctum-like pain that you speak about in, in the book um, uh, that, that leads one to writing, you know. I, I, I really felt that. I was like, she's doing literary criticism, but she's she's doing this thing with it that feels like a drama and it was just then when you you know use the term drama dramatization that's precisely how I was thinking of it I was you know 
as a literary critic to do that thing of having to report what someone else has said, right? And sometimes you're rehearsing, you know, the events of a plot and sometimes you're rehearsing theoretical abstractions. And to do that in a way that that um that gives it life, you know, that um dramatizes it. But on some level also makes it feel conversational and i and i guess uh, you know this is uh th this is the kind of novelistic you're talking about and plotting um you know when em forster says something as tedious as like you know um a novel is a f uh, fiction and prose of a certain extent you know brackets 50,000 words and to to make that to make that live you know uh is amazing and uh, my my copy of this little art is full of of notes going how is she doing this how is she doing this? and trying to explain to myself what you're doing so that i might be able to do something like it <laughs> i mean i love i love that you use the term uh, rehearsal actually um because there's something about um a kind of preparation you know um preparatory sort of like speculative if we were if we were to run this in this way what would happen i think there's something of that happening in in this little art i hope where it's not it's not at maybe always completely sure of its moves um but it's it's trying to make things move and i think it is trying to to make things move um move again and i think that that literary critical project if the you know you know what you've just said about Ian Forster, like the definition of the of the novel being, you know, of a certain extent, and also how that's a translation from a French critic, um, uh, where in French um, the the term is it, it mean if you translate is it's the the phrase would be translated as a novel is of a certain spread. Also, you know, I just I know it, it's a te it's a tediously obvious thing, and and to say. Um, if you are, you know, you're invested in the novel, or, or indeed if you're a, you are, um, you know, you're a specialist of novel studies, I'm sure none of that sounds, or indeed a writer of novels, perhaps none of that sounds particularly new. And um, perhaps indeed E.M. Forster's aspects of the novel is like a kind of really, um, a text that, that has, feels exhausted. But I guess I, I am... And it can sound a bit, um, it is really quite genuine, the sense of being um, an amateur, being a novice in relation to the novel. And so wanting to teach myself how, your question of how is she doing this, um, both books were about how to, how, <laughs> teaching myself how to do this, how to do something, or how to achieve this project of, of um, making you know, Audre Lorde has the, there's an amazing line in, um, you know, from Audre Lorde about how they're, um, hopefully getting this right, uh, there are no new ideas, there are only new ways of making them felt. And I think that's something just, I feel is profoundly true of like taking um, ideas that have become, look commonplace, look familiar, and how do you give them, give them, uh, make them move in such a way that you can feel them again. And with Forster, reading Forster again, I think I had read aspects of the novel as a like 21-year-old or so. Um, 
reading him again, these lectures, again, they're lectures. I love it that they're like kind of, pub, you know, they're lectures and they're just profoundly strange and, and rich and interesting and insightful. And his phrasing, his use of language, it's just like felt intensely alive to me as a reader. Um, and yeah, what is this threshold of length? And, and, and so wanting to try and reactivate those, uh, yeah, the, those perhaps obvious, obvious things that we were all always saying as if, as if they were, as if they, as if they go without saying, as if we don't need to say them again or look at them again, because they are our, our ground, our stable ground. And I think with both translation and with the novel as a sense for myself um, of it not necessarily, or not maybe not at all, going without saying how you do this. And so the books have that um, sort of, it is a kind of autodidactic sort of element of like, how how do I make a space of, of writing which allows me to sort of learn uh, more about how to do this. And it's interesting that you're saying, and then as a reader, you're wondering how might I do this? And I really hope that I really, I guess a kind of further ambition for both books is there's something of the order of um, permission giving in the books that they feel open. I think there is, there are, as a reader, there are works that I read and I admire and they feel sealed to me. They feel they're so outside of the sphere of my capacity that they, I can only admire them. Um, and then there are other books that I read and somehow they seem to be holding out a hand to me and agitating me and making me feel like, ah, if that's possible, then maybe that's, that's repurposable. And so I think there are, you know, I wanted to like extend, so the invitation to sort of do translations or did you know that translation is something that we can all sort of start engaging with, whether or not we are fluent, whether or not we are, you know, um, did you know that the novel with a capital N is like, but, you know, did you know that the novel is a space of practice that can be entered? Um, maybe for lots of writers, that's obvious. And for me, that wasn't obvious. That took a long time of a long buildup of permission giving, self-permission giving to, to arrive there. So I would hope the book, Again, I'm, answer I'm answering at length, Jen. I hope that's all right. But your questions are really, yeah, you're they're sending me, sending me in all directions. I think that might be the point. Oh, is that <laughs> good? Um, there's um, that thing of um, you know, making things that are static that seem time-worn and a bit preserved in aspic, you know, making them move, um. But also of opening things out of, you know, uh, extending the franchise to other people. Um, um, there's something in that, that phrase that you use, in, I think, in this, uh, this little art. Um, that um, go with it. I'll go with it. You know, which is, to me, you know, the novelistic, it's about, you know, a, a suspension of disbelief or, you know, that double suspension of disbelief that, that uh, you talk about um we're doing when we're reading translations but there's a there's something cheeky and um and kind of willful and mischievous about it about i'm making this old stuff move i'm refreshing it i'm renewing it and i'm taking you with me 
And how do you how do you get someone to go with you? And I think that question is a rhythm question. You know, it's like move with, you know, there's an amazing um, lie. I really like um, Gabriel Joseph Avicii, um, but and his work was really important to me in, in writing the novel, for, especially this very slim book called uh, Everything Passes, which is it's sort of, it's it's a novel that could also be read. It exists in the space between novel and poem, or it produces that space for itself. And he says something um, in one of his critical works about books being something like again, I might be getting this wrong, paraphrasing on the fly, but um, uh, before they're generators of meaning, they're generators of of rhythm. And he's talking about Proust. I think he's talking about the the start of. À la recherche and longtemps, like the two beat of like longtemps, je me suis couché de bonheur, you know, like. And I think for me, as a as a reader and a writer, and someone who likes to move about a lot, an amateur dancer, um, in my life, I mean, just in my, you know, as we many of us are in our lives, bouncing around, doing the cleaning, um, or whatever. Um, rhythm is that is that pull? Is that is that I'm in before I knew I was in? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm called before, before I, you know, I read my, something else is responding to the call before, before my head is or my brain is. And uh, so that go with it, I think, yes, is a rhythm problem and a rhythm question, or at least that's how I, how I approach it, how I, that's how I try and formulate the invitation to read is through rhythm. Um, it makes me think of that lovely scene in the long form, uh, this question of going with it and and rhythm and being, you know, called to something before you know what you're about. Um, that lovely scene where we've been cooped up in the flat with Helen and Rose, you know, um, uh, trying to work out what affordances that, like, interior space might uh, give us. Um Looking at the, the book cover on the uh, on the shelves there, watching down, uh, and the, you know the lamp, and we have this uh, this you know quite um, detailed idea of this interior space, and then suddenly everything opens out. Um, Helen puts the sling on, and she straps Rose to it, and she goes outside, and suddenly there's this like beautiful opening out of the whole mood of the thing, you know, and. Um, she walks out into the street and the houses are speakers which I love and she's she's walking along and you know that that's the rhythm suddenly just like knocks you right over in that book and that you know um your books are always they always do what they're about right and that seemed to me to be this you know this staging of that precise moment where you you find the rhythm and you can go on you can go with it yeah and how Essentially, oh, that's that's amazing to hear. Like that, that you received indeed that because it's a change. It's a change. You know, it's a change. They've gone from that stress, also of getting ready to go out, and that panic, that sort of skittery kind of panic, to something that's like more deeper, bassy, companionable. You know, she's outdoors. She can walk now. She can she can think, and her she can range. Her mind can range. I mean, I felt like with um. The opening of the long form is about pacing a room with a within um 
a new baby, a very young baby. And I know this might sound, um, well, this is in my head, you know, as I would, I wanted to have that. It's, it writes about this kind of bounce and hum. And, and I was thinking a lot about how, whether or not you have any experience um, holding newborns, um, probably someone who's never held a newborn before, if we were to pass them one now, um, would discover quite quickly that standing still is not going to work, you know, quite quickly. I think it's just the human impulse that you start to bend your knees and you start to, I'm doing this on the sofa, you can't get, get this through the mic, but, you know, you start to bob um, and bobbing seems to work. Bobbing seems to have a calming or, you know, it seems to produce a, a mode of, of being together, an interactivity which seems to to work better to you know work in what sense but it seems to be to be more sustainable than standing still and I wanted in a way the long form I wanted it to be a book I know it's a book of course it can only be described as a book about about motherhood or a book about co-living um about a day with a you know with an adult and a child a very young child of course that's makes sense to describe it in that way um because that's indeed what it what it's about that that that's the situation it sets up but i wanted in a, my hope was that it could be a book where you could have absolutely no interest in that situation whatsoever it could be like the last thing that you want you, you want to read about or you feel pertains to you and your life but there's something about the sort of rhythm of of that the opening and again, I don't know if I've achieved this. This is what I'm rehearsing. You know, this is what this is the rehearsal. But something about the 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 manner of the prose and the pacing of the of the opening set of sequences, where you are carried, you you go with it at a level, at a kind of base level of um, not only human rhythm but um, life rhythm that is working on you anyway. If, uh, but that's I know that sounds like intense, insanely ambitious, really, for for what you want a piece of prose to do. Um, but that was the hope. <laughs> I think it's a fine hope. It's a fine hope. Um, one of the um, ways that that rhythm is achieved is um, with how the books actually laid out in the form and the, the structure it takes um i want to ask you about the white spaces you know um i've uh i've seen elsewhere that you've um i've seen you call them fragments and then correct yourself yeah <laughs> quite corrected yourself very quickly but um because they're and i've seen i've i've seen other people refer to them as fragments as well and um uh reading the long form uh the last couple of weeks for the first time i was i think probably lazily myself i've i've thought oh yeah kate writes these things that are they're in fragments and um and then you know reading the long form you have a whole thing about how these are not fragments you know these are um you know these are these are uh you know chap these it has a history in in, in the way that um 
chapters have always worked and you know sometimes they are incomplete and open-ended and sometimes they are they are closed up and and uh, you know and, and a form in and of themselves um i wonder what you call them yeah um if you call them anything yeah that's interesting i mean fragments is true it has a sort of charge in a way as a term as a, um it's interesting just you know thinking of of Holland Barthes and his work and his practice of, um, you know, when he was, you know, in like 1978, he was saying, you know, all this chatter around the fragment, it's not really that interesting. <laughs> not to say, you know, I just found that, that he, you know, having written something like, you know, uh, you know, Holland Barthes by Roman Barthes, like what, you know, and yet already feeling that perhaps that wasn't uh, whether whether just this question of whether fragment is the right is indeed the right descriptor for what um, I mean what his books are doing that's a whole other set of questions uh, I think for myself I'm interested in how continuity is achieved particularly in the long form but I think I was already interested in 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 this little art indeed like the how how you how you continue with and stay with um, something that you've set running or I've set running, um, like as a question, like, you know, a set of questions around the practice of translation. It feels like with the books, I, I, I try and um, set something, set something off, let something loose. And then, then the question to myself as someone who's done that, how then do I deal with, how then do I treat or attend to what I have let loose, what I've put in here? Am I actually attending to it? Am I doing it like justice? Have I, am I actually taking responsibility for it in such a way that I'm not killing it or just doing it for reasons, sort of if I put something in, in the books, why is it there? Like, what is it because I want to signal, is it because I want to protect myself from criticism or I want to signal my own intelligence or well-readness or, or is it because some other, there's another sort of order of necessity for why it needs to be let loose and set running. And, and, um, and I think that question of, of continuity and which is also a question of a practice of, well, at least that's one of the arguments of the long form, which again, is not my new argument. It's something that's been said by Henry Fielding. It's said again by Virginia Woolf. It's said again, you know, many other <laughs> writers of composers of, of, you know, arrived at this old insight afresh that continuity is achieved through through contrast. You can't. It's a, a bit like you can't stand still. Like if you, it's going to make everyone unhappy. <laughs> and the same way as if you stay in the same vein, in the same tone. Um, I think you'll probably. I mean, obviously there are works of literature that sort of like just go deep into like one tunnel tonal tunnel and just like stay there um but and manage to achieve extraordinary effects for myself i think it's all about bounce and contrast and offsetting and movement and um so the question of the of the fragment is i think more the question of of, of the of the the shorter part the part that's in that's being um set in relation to the whole and in relation to what's just come before and what has come, you know, is about to come afterwards. And and I guess 
I get that. I mean, there's no like deep philosophical or aesthetic objection to fragments. I guess only only that um, only that I guess they 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 it implies a sense of um, brokenness, which again I don't is me is it all sometimes brokenness is really important, but. I think I, I would say yes, fragments. As long as, as what we're talking about is a, is is a relation, a relationality at the level of the composition as a whole. I mean, these books are, um, co deeply composed. Like all of the work actually happens at the level of sequence and ordering. Not all of the work, but a lot of the work. A lot of like the, the tears. <laughs> you know, like you know, in with the long form, it was like, I can't believe after sort of four years of working on this, here I am collapsing it again in order to reorder it. Like, how could I still, how could I have not found the order yet? And yet there I was, like, you know, two months before submitting the manuscript, like collapsing the whole thing to find, to find the sequence again. So it, yeah, yeah, does that, does that get somewhere towards? 100%. Okay. Yeah. It makes me think of, um, you know, one of a number of like sort of nested forms within the long form for thinking about what it's doing is this thing of the mobile. And it makes me think of uh, Helen and uh, Reba. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Reba. Um, putting together, well, Helen begins putting together the mobile and has this idea of, you know, I'm going to tell a story of the history of forms. And, you know, it's going to have this incredible, you know, uh, narrative linear um, structure, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the story. And Reva comes in and says, "No, it's about contrasts. It's a, it's a, about the work of contrast. You've got to put this next to this because Rose will really like seeing, you know, the the the, the curve of the circle or the dot next to the point of the triangle." And then, um, and I I kind of wanna wanna ask you, which one are you? Are you Helen or are you Rebo when it comes to, you know, this this tendency that we have apparently to, to want to put things in narrative order, in a in the, the order of a conventional narrative, you know? Yeah, call that, Jen. That's a really, really good question. Um, I think I'm interested in learning from other ways of making things. I think that's it. And Reva is like the suggestion is that she she works in a bar, but she's also has a studio. So maybe she's an artist. Um, well, she is in, in my head, I guess. Although that that's not explained like what the nature of her practice is. Um, but Helen sort of she has authority for Helen because she's good at um, she's she has a a practical. She's good at making spatializing things, you know. And uh, and so when it comes to assembling the mobile, she's like she's she's a great assistant because she. She's she has skills, and uh, I think I am. You know, it's been my my privilege in my in my in my teaching life to be um, in working in art schools where I'm sort of attending to other kinds of other forms of making that don't exist as books um, or as writing, or um, but I have other other modes of being, other forms of life, other form, you know, some of which are spatial and um, material in different ways. And, and so I think I am 
you know, I think I am very compelled by by story. I am also very compelled by that ambition in that sense of like, let's you know the history of four. You know, let's uh, let also then then let's find it in a let's find it in a in a newborn's mobile. Here are circles. Here are squares. Here are triangle. Here is you know here are these basic compositional elements, and here is contrast. You know, it's all already here in this kinetic sculpture, domestic kinetic sculpture, you know, um, it's here. Uh, I am interested in saying, okay, do we start with, yeah, start, let's start with dots. That's what she does, you know, let's start with dots because one of the, the, one of the pieces, the components of the, of the mobile is dots and there's also waves and then sort of end on square thinking like end on rationality. And I like that. I, yeah, again, like getting excited at the level of like, what, what would a book be that's sort of narrated the history of form? in the world like this you know it's a sort of crazy level of ambition but that it that i find that almost funny comically exciting and then uh and then to have this sort of counterpart of this other way other way of thinking about things another way of looking at things another way of of, of making things and i think that that um impact of my sort of regular exposure to other modes of doing and being um uh you know other 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 forms of material practice as a pedagogue like as a tutor has been just ongoingly like intensely stimulating for me and and provoking and and challenging because it's like well you know the things that in my sort of um education the, the sort of value systems that I thought were stable around what yeah what what makes a good novel let's say or what what's makes a novel worthy of our time or or a work of art worthy of our time, like sort of entering into a space like a day of studio visits, and it's like challenge one, challenge two, challenge three. You know, you come out at the end of the day thinking like, you know, I have to, you know, I find it intensely stimulating, and and I'm I'm sure my great, you know, the working with the the the, the artists that I've worked with at the early stages of their careers has been sort of deeply formative for what then I think is. I want to do in in books. I'm really committed to the book as a form, as a as a material, uh, as a medium. Like I love. There's lots of things I could talk at length about what I like about books, starting with cheapness and portability and and access and privacy of engagement. All of like there's loads of things I could say about that. But um, I think I I think what I found to come back to sort of permission giving, I was sort of as a tutor sort of encountering young people taking just ignore like showing immense courage and taking like in, enormous risks in their work and sort of self-authorizing in a way that's was just intensely stimulating and inspiring for me so when I would come back to writing my non-academic book on translation <laughs> um and there were things like and I as a tutor I'd be like you know you could do this you know you, you could just break it there you know, you could just pull those things apart or you know that you could put as a, you know, the mobile works in the long form as another rhythm device, as another sort of punctuation device or set of kind of pauses in the book. Um, so it would be something that I would say as a tutor in response to someone else's work. Do you know that this is all available to you? And then I come back to my own work and my own room and be like, why then do I not allow that for myself? Like, so in a way it, 
response to your much earlier question about the uncategorizable, it was also like an effort to sort of bring that daring or courage or things that I was seeing around in my work with younger people. You know, if I'm going to be credible to say, you know, you can do that, try it. I need to bring some of that energy back to my own work, you know? Um, yeah. It's so interesting to, to hear you say that because um, I have the experience myself sometimes where the only way I feel I can go on with, you know, the thing I'm trying to write is uh, to pretend it's something else entirely. Right. You know? Um, and uh, to pretend it's, a, a, you know, a completely different uh, form of material practice, a completely different kind of thing that I'm doing, um, which kind of makes me think um, of the the Zumba scene. I have to correct you, Jen. People say to me, "It's no, it's not." Listen, <laughs> I've written it in the book. She's this. She means Zumba. This she is doesn't. Zumba. What is it? It was in Paris. Um, there was a phenomenon. Maybe there still is a phenomenon. I don't. You know, I haven't lived in Paris for the last seven years or so. Um, called Swedish Gym. And what? I don't know why it was Swedish, particularly apart from you would stand in a circle around the instructor. And but the Swedish gym was this like hardcore, not a particularly hard for me, hardcore like workout on a Saturday morning. But then there was a version of it which had a axle choreography, like a choreographic, where you would it was sort of like gym but with dance routines. So maybe it's not that far away from uh, Zumba, but. It was nevertheless not specifically that. It was it was something of its own. It's a, it was own its own hybrid form that was a, a class above a swimming pool in the in Treizième arrondissement uh, for a time that I used to get a lot of pleasure going to because you danced to like aha and stuff like that. Um, I'm sorry, I, I, this <laughs> just still changes a lot for me that it's not Zumba. The 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 um the scene is so clear, you know, the fact that it takes place over a swimming pool. I, I have my own swimming pool, the Ennerdale Leisure Centre in East Hull in mind when I read that scene. Um uh but also when I read that scene um where uh you're talking about uh you know the, the, the kind of certain sl slant of sunlight coming off someone's hand and you're like, I wanna I wanna film this. And you start thinking quite seriously about it, you know, about how to go about um, how to go about filming it. And then, you know, in the end, you come back to uh, writing, you come back to language and form, you, re yeah. you, you return. And um, it was just so interesting to me to, to, to read about that, um, you know, longing for other forms that kind of like, I, I feel it myself, you know, this kind of sense of exasperation where I'm like this would be so much easier for me it's um uh I was going to ask what what oh, what's the imagine imaginary God. other almost anything at the moment it's uh playing the saxophone okay and it's uh you know becoming becoming a seriously serious fashion designer but the, so the book could be a collection do you mean in relation to your right could you transpose the the writing into a into a fashion collection or is it just like a completely different method or mode of working a comp like it's like um getting up off the desk throwing the computer out the window okay, and know, not doing turning that. over the 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 table and, and going away you know farewell to language kind of kind of which is you know it, i mean it's preposterous it's me being a drama queen yeah um but in a more uh productive way uh when i'm not having a tantrum about it I do think, okay, so what is it about, uh, what is the freedom 
the imagining that form or you know playing my saxophone really badly um affords me what is it that i'm yeah you know finding here and how do i reimport that because back into the writing that i'm doing because you know this thing that you're describing going on these studio visits and and you know saying to your students you know just did you know you could do this you could just break it and start again and then coming back to your um your computer and and being like why do i find it so hard to heed my own advice in this form in this space you know there's something this it I wonder what the fantasy, the, the the saxophonist fantasy and the and the fashion designer fantasy, is it not also about the spaces that you think your work might enter or could enter? Because I feel like it's been very productive. It is very productive for me to not be existing solely in what might look like the space, the obvious spaces of reception for my work. I mean, that really generally, like not just not being... I mean that at the level of like not living like living in Rotterdam, not in I'm published in the UK, but I don't I haven't lived in the UK, I realised, for like I mean I did for apart from a brief, brief period for twenty-three years. Also within even operating within the space of kind of art making as a tutor, I'm not I don't I'm not an artist. I, I don't have an artist training. I come in as a translator, writer with a academic training so there's a kind of outsiderness that works there which but that sort of not I mean outsider is a strong term um I mean I just mean like a kind of multiplication of an awareness that there are many other spaces um which have different sort of value systems where your you know your book entering being addressed and being and being judged by appraised or received by fashion designers which would look at it and find things in it, which would be very different from the scene of, of literary critical reception in English, you know? And I find for my own sense of like permission giving has been to not only, I guess, imagine, but also like actively, like the, you know, those projects that you described, um, exercise and pathetic criticism, it, it is a work of, of, of literary criticism. It is a, you know, it is what it is, it's a big page, which is in, contained within a small format book. And it exists in, 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 you know, we printed like 200 copies or something like that. And it is published by um, a small, it was published by a small kind of artist run press based in Yorkshire. And it doesn't, you know, if it enters any spaces, it entered spaces of, of, you have other forms of making in practice which aren't actually anything to do with academic literary criticism which is at that time in sort of 2011 I was sort of some, still somewhat had a foot inside so I think it's a you're multiplying the spaces of reception and which is also about or imagining them and also about sort of decentering that for yourself and it's not that with my you know the books this idea that they would just go towards I like the idea that they might go towards and meet very different orders of readers that maybe not be the most obvious ones um, or the ones that might be clearly expected and you know if it's a novel let's say but that someone might receive the book and pick up on as you did that there's an exploded mobile in the in the book and it has this kinetic potentiality I mean I really I loved you know the process of working with Ray Amara who uh, you know, drew the mobile, and there's a collaboration of thinking of how these pieces worked, and 
in my head, it, I wanted to hold on to the possibility, which may never get enacted, of, of if you wanted to, if you were super motivated, you could score out those pages and laminate them and suspend them and have, oh, you know, and have the book. You could, you know, so it has that. And the kind of readership that, uh, yeah, that, that might be a sort of response to the book that would happen if the book were able to, it was in, you know, it can be envisaged that the book can travel into, into, into different kinds of spaces. And I think, yeah, that, that has helped me to think about what I'm doing. Yeah. It's a merchandising opportunity. <laughs> Mobile. I'd love that. Um, uh, Thinking, of, I mean, I I feel like this um, this thing of um, permission giving uh, is you know coming up again and again, and um, you know certainly reading uh, this little art for the first time, I felt it really powerfully when you um, you know you re you rehearse that uh, kind of classic tedious um, literary critical bun fight of a. Uh, um, Helen Lowe Porter's translations of Thomas Mann and this kind of thing that erupted in the pages of the literary press. You know, she's got it wrong. She's made mistakes. Um, and um, and I love that that it, there you have no truck with a kind of, um, you know, the, the, the shame or the embarrassment that results from... Um, you know, being found out, this kind of like, uh, you know, a, a crack in one's veneer of like perfect expertise. Um, and, um, you know, that, that that just felt like a really kind of positive intervention to make within, um, you know, especially academic um, literary discourse that, that can feel precisely like that and and is no position from which to, to I mean, to live or to, to think this kind of like, clenched feeling of being terrified of being wrong in case one uh, ignites a um you know a bun fight in the, the pages of the literary press about yourself um and i i wondered whether that was you know a, a kind of plea for a, a a different way of relating um within the kind of literary discourse you know it it, it felt quite powerful to me i think that's interesting and i again i think i think i would in terms of sort of autobiographically sort of writing, coming it away, it, I had this hope to write about translation, this sort of formative, intensely, the most sort of intellectually sort of exciting process I'd ever been engaged with, you know, was, was that that process of translating, the, you know, the most intensive learning experience I'd um I'd had. I, I wanted to sort of communicate some of some of that, and and also, yeah, to sort of share out the invitation of, did you know, did you know that this is a practice available to you? Um, and but the writing of it, or the arriving at a form that that, or a manner, a kind of way into writing it, did coincide with being hired as a writing tutor um, at the Pietzvart on the MFA, um, and. What I found extraordinary about having only ever taught in you know, spaces, the university seminar uh, prior to that, where the mode was of, um, I mean, this is a characterization, I mean, it's a caricature, but to put it 
starkly uh, in contrast in terms of contrast the mode was about a kind of performance of one's own of knowing more performance of intelli- of intelligence and knowing and about feeling anxious and ashamed if you didn't you know if you mispronounce someone's name or you haven't read or you you know and it was something that as a student um I tried to rise to tried tried to rise to and you know and sometimes did and sometimes suffered and as we all have our own experiences of this what I found remarkable it's not to say I know I can kind of paint the this institution or the art school as being like this space of you know utopia which of course is really 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 not um it's an institution and but nevertheless, on this particular program, on my timing of coming into that program, what what just astounded me was how this culture of taking students seriously, everyone took everyone very, very, very seriously. Whatever was being put on the table, put in the space or on the wall, was being encountered with like, let's let's take this, let's engage with what this is. I hadn't. I hadn't encountered that in a pedagogical space before. And but to come back to the Helen Lowe Porter, so that was sort of, I thought was just extraordinary to me that that was how you would proceed and then what you can then make happen. What you can then make happen, what thoughts you can think and work you can produce if there's a baseline of being taken seriously, um, someone's actually attending and not waiting to sort of stop you, you know? There's, there's a critical mode, which is a form of criticality, which seems to me to be all about, like, how do we stop this person from doing, how do we stop work getting made or writing getting written? There's too much of it. You know, how do we close this down? Contrast, how do we, how do we, you know, how do we let this live, allow this to live or give, you know, how do we promote the conditions under which this might live most, this might thrive? And so with the Helen Lowe Porter, I mean, there is, there is a tone in that passage of the book where I am exasperated and kind of angry, but I think it's to do with like, what if we were to take the terms that she was setting for her own practice seriously and just stay with them for a while? We're not to say that they are the right terms or the most productive terms or even the most interesting terms, but why don't we just give them time and also part of that is the the letter that her daughters wrote um in objection to this piece and the tls and and uh and the terms that they were setting were offering for understanding their mother's work the mother's lifetime you know the commitment lifelong commitment to this practice of translating thomas mann like what if we were to just to slow down to you know and to attend to that before before being too fast, being being too quick to say, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, we know, you know, wrong, 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 or like, we know it already, like, boring, you know? And I think that's, if there's a method or a, I guess, a kind of politics uh, to the, to the work, to, um, I would, and, and I guess it's also the invitation to the reader is to say, let's, um, you know, I hope um, I hope it's something that I do as a reader. I hope it's something I do as a tutor, or, and I try and do when I'm reading other people's work within my own work. Of just, of, um, I'm gonna the baseline, the base starting position is I take this seriously. I don't minimize or trivialize it uh, as a starting position. And I think 
if you do that, different things are possible. But I, I don't, it's something that I don't see, and this sounds like a kind of a sort of advert for my own pedagogy or something, but I, I just, it's not something, the reason it blew my mind going, moving to Rotterdam and seeing is, is that I felt, and I feel like it's a rare thing. It's not actually that common. Yeah, I mean, hearing it put as simply as you you put it just then, like it's like um, you know the orientation uh, is towards shutting it down. It's like there's there's too many things being there's too much of this. You need to do like if just you stop it, yeah. And then also there's something about protect territory protection, and then 100%. I can kind of carry on sort of serenely with my own work if you stop, yeah, stop doing what you're doing, you know, because it's. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to give it time. Uh, yeah, and there's an amazing. I, again, I'm, all of my citations are really on the fly, so forgive me if they're. But in um, Deleuze says something somewhere about work that's um, critical of life or creative of life. Again, contrast. Like it's, I mean, I know the opposition can't be as simple as that, but I do find that useful to think about. You know, work that's critical of life or creative of life what do you want you want to sometimes it's important to be critical of life you know I, I i i do recognize that um of course but there are forms of being critical there are modes of being critical there are practices there are attitudes of um engagement which are not about not challenging the work or, or expressing what might be problematic and difficult about it or um, wrong-headed about it or, you know, limited about it. But there are modes of doing it which are not about causing someone to stop. Yeah. Which, which the shaming position does. It's very hard. It takes immense strength to proceed, to carry on post-humiliation. On the other hand, you're also you also seem to me like a writer with a really um, serious engagement with the question of the ethical, you know, with um, with the the kind of ethics and the, the politics of um, the forms of knowledge uh, that we're using. I'm I'm thinking particularly of this thing of um, that develops in the long form about um, narrative uh, omniscience. Where, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, if we're saying that, that one of the defining generic characteristics of the novel is its realism, it's daft to assume omniscience. It seems to me that also what you're saying is, is that we don't need to know everything. That actually, even beyond, you know, the principle of selection, there's something in uh, privacy and in withholding. And you do that in the book. There are things about Helen... Um, that you don't tell us, um, which feels quite important. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm interested to know, to know, um, you know, where these kind of feelings about the, the the ethics of the form come from, how they've developed for for you, and and how they played into the writing of the long form. That's an amazing set of thoughts, Jen. Yeah, um, I think. There's a lot. There was a lot of sort of reading of um, literary criticism, like nerd, like nerdy, you know, on a Friday night reading um, that went into thinking and reading and yeah, teaching myself about 
more about the novel and also what what specialists of the form what you know um just being really interested in that in that sphere of knowledge and expertise um people who work within novel studies uh so i was doing a lot of reading and 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 sort of wondering and and the question of omniscience there's a really interesting article by the critic theoretician jonathan color about like why why when we say why do we when we talk about a third person narrator who knows who has a degree of unusual unusual knowledge um about their characters has that degree of access of kind of being able to enter into a mind space more than one mind space and rogue why do we scale that capacity up to total knowledge to omniscience to something godlike which would be the objection to you know the objection you often read like omniscience being this sort of totalizing judging um all-seeing mode which is not how life is like and also perhaps not what you not as a what, as a writer not a position you want to take like what what kind of hubris is that to sort of presume to know everything but the question of colors question is like why do we why do we scale that knowing some things to knowing everything you know maybe omniscience is the wrong word for for the way i'm completely fascinated by this third person narration thing and so finding it so ex such an exciting technology compared to the first person which is the mode of um of the of this little art and and i think you know again it's forster he says this he's that's like so to my mind astute and insightful we're stupider at sometimes than at others which it seems to me to be true like sometimes i feel like like sitting here with you i feel like i can you know, you, I catch your eye or, you know, and I feel like, you know, with, with all, with hubris, I can feel, I can say to myself, I feel what, what you're feeling. Or I think I think what you're thinking. And that is sometimes true. We know that in our lives, like that's sometimes true that we are actually thinking the same thoughts as other people. <laughs> and sometimes we get it completely wrong. Um, but those flashes of sort of, um, of, of, of mind melding let's say or meeting or or communication intermind communication are also part of what it's like to be alive i think um and they're also of course all these these patches of deep opacity and and not knowing and and i really like the idea of of a, a novel something like a novel written in the third person only knowing as much as it's not like there are things that i could tell you about helen that I know, I mean, I mentioned earlier about maybe Reba, you know, she's an artist. That is in the book that there's a suggestion that she's an artist. I couldn't tell you more about what she makes in her studio. Um, I probably, and I couldn't, it's not like I know more than what's in the book. And and it's also not about what I know either. I think that what was so important to me about writing in the third person and making this novel that, I hope functions a bit like an like the mobile. It has its distribution of parts and it has its relation between its parts that are offsetting and balancing and then tipping each other. That it's a it's a collective production. It's a it's a collaborative form. It's not about so there are forms of knowledge in there which are not mine um, as the writer of it, and there are things that 
passages in that in in the book that are for me like deeply mysterious actually even though I wrote them um I know I don't mean to sound like I don't know like I'm just trying to you know to be truthful like quite genuinely like there's a part there's a section called we wash the novel which I don't really know what that might be to wash the novel beyond the sort of action that happens in the book of the novel does get put through the washing machine but like what does that mean to wash a novel I find I find that deeply funny and mysterious and strange and 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 so yeah this it does seem to me important to recognize that we do know some things about each other it's possible to have that inter interhuman and in, not only human non-human knowledge and it's also important to recognize that we um that we don't um and that's and we move through these phases of of knowing and not knowing in our in our long-term relations that's what it at least to me that's what it feels like and it feels like something about the novel and particularly the third person that was a sort of tool for expressing this not clearly not for the first time <laughs> you know this is what novels can do um but that was the way i was thinking about it as a as a mode and that's why it was so important to me that it that it is a third a third person narration so one of the things that the long form does is um make this identification between um the act of uh, caring for a baby and that of writing a novel and more than that makes this identification between uh, a whole tradition of thinking and writing about caring for a baby and a whole tradition of thinking and writing about what novels are and it's remarkable really because um you know when you begin to lay it out it seems to be an identification that's just like been waiting to be made you know and i wonder if you could talk us through um how you came to to kind of bring those um those traditions of thought together and to think like lay them alongside each other and start thinking about them together um yeah i think maybe i would start by saying there is there is this laying alongside and i love that image you know like what because comparison can sometimes sound like equalization you know as if these two things are that are very very different clearly completely different are actually the same whereas i think something like laying alongside allows for the fact that they could sort of speak to each other or throw light on each other um bounce off each other without being collapsed into each other and that was the to come back to the mobile image that was the hope that there is this sort of offsetting that they describe each other in that strong sense of you know the way you can spatially describe a circle you know um they describe each other move around each other but i would also say caring for a baby and maybe more than that being set alongside novel writing i think there's more something closer to novel reading which i think that i make i offer that as a kind of uh correction but in a way it's not a correction because i think novel writing at least for me as you know like happens through novel reading uh but i what i wanted to say or that was something that the book does say um quite explicitly at one point is that here we have two different situations of address of addressing and being addressed and 
the situation of 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 Helen and and her newborn uh, is quite intense. You know, um, you are being addressed, called upon, really. You know, in in a sort of in a really uh, intensive, quite singular, quite particular way. Um, and likewise, Rose, the baby, is being called upon and addressed by Helen in quite a particular, intensive and singular way. Um, that's not the same as reading a long novel, um, <laughs> you know. But nevertheless, there is something about addressing and being addressed. And also accommodation. There's a word I really kind of got stuck on, of kind of mutual accommodation, what it is to make room in your mind space for the call of another person and what it is to um, respond to that call in your own manner and improvise a way of a way of doing this together, which I think, you know, is what happens um, in the situation of, 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 of childcare, of living, co-living. And I think it's also what happens, not also, I mean, there, there's something interesting about setting that alongside a sort of imaginative demand of a novel of like, I accommodate this setting. Like I've asked you as a reader, you know, as the most kind of incredibly sensitive reader of my work to imagine that living space and to hold it in your own head, you know, make space for it and respond to it in your own head. So two situations of address. And I think the further aim of the, is and to see my, there was this, this intuition that they had something to say to each other. Um, that was really early on. I knew that's what I wanted to do was somehow to make these two situations speak to each other. Then there was the big question of how to do that. And that was that was how to actually make that communicable. What 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 would that do if I tried to do that? I didn't have a sense at the beginning of already knowing what that would do. And part of the, the process of the long process of writing it was sort of learning again, like finding out for myself what what would that do if we set a, you know, naming naming to begin with, the baby isn't named and she receives her name at a certain point in the book and um the narration names her and, you know, to set naming a newborn, a newcomer, um, alongside naming a possible person calling a character into being, that's not the same thing. Like the, the stakes are different, <laughs> completely different. And yet perhaps they they might shed light on each other or just sort of complicate each other in ways that might make both situations move, to use that term that we introduced earlier but I think also maybe the more like the further ambition was to try and I I made the situation of um intergenerational co-living to put it that way um you know like and caregiving um relevant to the novel form because I'm a long-term kind of signed up invested reader of novels and it's an art form that you know it's an art form I live with and I you know augments my life you know reading novels and has done since childhood and I couldn't imagine if you were to say to me you can't read any more novels you know I've been or any more long forms um so for me as the, as this sort of uh maker of this work I I wanted to make uh Helen and Rose's situation pertain to something outside of their domestic sphere and to show how 
these two spheres of being and doing and responsivity and collaboration have something to say to each other. But the broader, the broader ambition was to say that this domestic setting, this situation, pertains beyond... I made the connection or the relation with, with novel reading and novel writing and the history of, of time-based forms and duration and so on, but it could also pertain to other spheres of experience. And I think that was a kind of response to something that I've often felt uh, that this that this this life experience is somehow irrelevant. Somehow it's it pertains only to itself or only to those who are actually doing it. It's like interesting to read about those engaged with this work of of caregiving or you know caring for the newcomers you know for the beginners um that's interesting only to people who might want to do that in their lives or um or are already doing that in their lives and that's where it stops and i and so part of the aim of when i said earlier i wanted to imagine a reader who might have absolutely no interest in babies even though they've been one you know, that's the thing. It's like it is a human condition. Like they might readers who might not have any sort of form of identification or relationship with the the adult player in that dynamic. We have all been the infant player in that dynamic. Um, but for a reader who is like, no, that totally like not not for me, not interested, not relevant, not that there might be something of like a kind of breach in that. There's an image in the book of like of circles and the way we draw around ourselves like that our sets of interests the circles of our concerns you know that doesn't concern me that's not of interest to me and I so yeah the ambition of the one of the ambitions of the book was to try and write in write this scenario in such a way that it felt like it, its relevance was real because it is real it is real it is pertinent and it is deeply interesting and complicated and that sense of um you know um this this isn't relevant to me and you know when we are uh writing a, a book about caregiving for a child that is subject to you know all kinds of um forces of you know uh, misogyny all all kinds of things and and it's um it, it's a, a kind of um that sense of this doesn't address me and therefore why should I be? Why should I be interested in it? Um, it's embedded in the character of Helen, isn't it? Um, that sense of um, of becoming addressed somewhat under duress and being like, "What is this? Is this me now? Am I? Am I this? Uh, is my new name mother? You know? And I, you know, apparently I am embarking upon this transformatory, uh, transformational process of becoming." something called motherhood you know the stable state um and but the the book is um it's quite explicit uh where in, in the sense of this this pertains to you you know a call to attention uh caregiving for children pertains to all of us you you, you know you should be interested in this but equally it understands that um you know the the old forms for for thinking about this um aren't fit for purpose anymore but it knows that we have to abide you know with them we have to live amongst those forms the word mother the state of motherhood you know it's a stable state apparently which the you know the book completely explains isn't the case 
and so it's it's quite complicated the work that you do to you know situate the reader and also the character in relation to this 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 thing yeah i mean yeah that's a rich set of thoughts there um i think there is definitely something about which maybe links to something you said earlier about sort of generic instability or something like that you know something about names and naming and then and and the terms that we have are that are available to us to describe our lives to ourselves and to other people and our work to ourselves and our, and to other people and it's intensely powerful you know to say to, to sort of say to call something um a novel uh does something of course it does it does something um it adjusts expectations it 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 suggests practices of reading and histories of reading it certain forms of attention um it's very different to calling something essay we know this and the same thing is like being called like Kate Briggs you know that's my name I received it I didn't choose it um it does you know of course it it, it enters the room before me you know sets up an Englishness like well whatever like a whole as we know as we know this part it does powerful work something I've um someone was asking me about the book recently and, and asked me to describe it and I whenever I describe it she said to you know she heard could see me hesitating around motherhood like why they why you know why are you hesitating as if as if that were not a term I live and embrace and I'm interested in and which I am which I am but I do think there's something about you talk about stability, which is really important to me, like this idea of it being somehow known what that is, um, and also that being somehow sealed and clear what that is, and also how that the emphasis of that term, that state, um, being on the adult, being on the the one the one player in that dynamic, and one of the sort of further things I hope the book does is. Um, it's a. Uh, there are two. There are two people. It's relational. It's 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 not. And so that's why that's also why it needed to be in the third person is so that we could move the the baby is as an important a kind of agent in the book and a sensibility and a consciousness in the book as the as the adult, and that is a challenge. I think at least I saw it as a challenge, to, it was a challenge to to do that in a way which I hope is somewhat convincing. Um, to be, yeah, constantly offsetting the adult mode. Um, but I felt also something embedded in the history of the novel form in English and the way it's connected to the birth of the individual. And, you know, what Ian Watt says, again, like a canonical text in novel studies, but I felt, which maybe everyone knows and has read, if they've done, you know, they've studied English literature and they have... I didn't actually read it as a student. I read it fairly recently, like, you know, within the last five years. And, and it just made something so clear to me, this, this linkage of, of like a certain form of ideology, capitalism, the birth of the individual, this idea of being self-sufficient, autonomous, um, able to leave, you know, able to strike out on your, you become interesting. And again, Forster says this in really insightful ways, I think, like, you know, a protagonist becomes an interesting protagonist when they can do things on their own. So how do you, so 
There's an amazing book by uh, Rivka Galchen called um, Little Labours, um, where she, which is about living. Uh, it's a, somewhat like a, a memoir of living with her first child, and she does raise this question of why are why are there no babies in 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 literature? And says something like there there are more dogs than babies, also more abortions than babies. Um, so she doesn't actually say what, and that's the thing. She doesn't say ask why. She she states it as a sort of um, sociological, uh, you know, idiosyncratically achieved fact in the sense from her own reading practice. This is what she's observed, and I think that's that's true within the sort of tradition of English, the English language novel. And I guess my question to myself was then, okay, that seems to be true, and why? Why is that true? Because it's hard to narrate. You can't have one with Helen and, and Rose. You can't have one without the other. I can't have Helen walking outside without accounting for what Rose is up to. And I can't have Rose on her own because that's the Winnicott's, W.D. Winnicott's amazing phrase. Like, there's no such thing as a baby on their own. If there were, it would be catastrophic. So how to make a novel do and then make something like motherhood sound more like how my experience of it, which it being in a dynamic of collaboration, force and counterforce. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that question of who gets to be a protagonist, you know, is such a vital one. And like, nearly whooped in joy when I saw the manoeuvre that you made to like, you know, just take down this entire like uh, tradition of thinking about what novels do, which can become, you know, is often so dogmatic and so calcified and, and you know, myself as a writer, I can feel so stuck within, you know, um, you know, even when you disagree with it, it's still, you're still somehow attached to this, you know, this, this this dogmatic tradition of thinking about novels. When you say in um, in the book, in the long form, um, you know, for um, a person to be a protagonist according to this way of thinking, they would have to, you know, completely depart from the state of being human. This kind of like, you know, the, the, the Ian Watt thesis, the, which, you know, ac across um, multiple thinkers and thinking about the novel, this, you know, it's the product of individualism of this kind of like uh, 18th century rise of the middle classes. The, a protagonist can, cannot be human. They cannot be dependent. They cannot be enmeshed in, in the world. They, ha you know, they have to be this this individual figure. And that was, I just thought that was fab. <laughs> but, but it's interesting. I think that, yeah, I mean, Indeed, like, and that's the, that's not again. That's not new. Or I mean, it's 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 in the sense it's what we it's how we experience our lives, and it's something that you know thinkers like Judith Butler, for example, would be saying you know for us and um, in you know with great articulacy about this this state of um, or Donna Haraway or you know like the, what it is to be indeed entangled and dependent. And I but I think there's something about the novel. There's an amazing book by. Um, a woman called Isabel Armstrong called Novel Politics, which reads back through the, the 19th century novel, finding its radicality in it. I think there are, the thing about novels is they can be, they, they, they know lots of, they know and they don't know what they're doing. 
and they they have patches of luminosity and opacity they're complex you know they tend to be not all of them but you know they're let's say novels that 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 there are novels that are complicated sort of living things really um that that get encountered and re-encountered and offer themselves up in different ways you know we, we know this that's why we reread you know that's why we read um and i think there is a way of looking back at looking back through and a way and to connect this to again to to Roland Barthes and Comment Vivre Ensemble, How to Live Together, his source, his his knowledge source for that lecture course were novels to look at the architectural spaces that novels offer as sort of simulation, sort of speculative maquettes, models for for modes, forms of co-living that you could actually sort of transpose into life. So the novel was a kind of resource. He treated the novel as a source of, as a repository of knowledge about how to live together and looked at different novels, looked at Robertson Crusoe, like living alone, but of course he's not only living alone temporarily until Friday turns up or that there's the parrot and the goats, you know, that, um, so <laughs> what I'm saying is I think um, you could read the novel, um, the hit the novel. I mean, what we're talking about, like the novel in English, a certain kind of Western tradition of, of the, the novel we were taught, let's say, in our English literature degrees in in the UK. It, um, uh, you can read the novel back for all of its codependencies and all of its um, entangled modes of being. Um, I think they're there. I think they're there in in Henry Fielding. I think they're there in you know they're. I think they're there. It's just what how how the attention is skewed and how the you know what you're reading for. I think it would be possible to. So to come back, are there are there no babies? Are there no babies in literature that, that there might be, and maybe that's also something to say about the baby in in the long form is Rose is a baby and it's important that she's a baby and that it's important to stay with that, stay with the trouble of that of a of living with a baby because it's a singular kind of demand and it's a particular set of responsibilities but that situation of address is not an exclusive gated one it's not one that doesn't pertain to other other situations of address or other forms of living with with vulnerabilities or with 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 beings human and non-human that require care so is also a sense that she could be swapped out I mean she can't be swapped out like that's but she could be swapped out there's also a plant but the pl in the room, <laughs> the plant doesn't need, it does need things, but it doesn't need it, things with the same frequency or intensity. But, and the novel on the floor needs attention, but it doesn't demand with the same frequency. It was not going to die if Helen doesn't attend to it. So the responsibility and the stakes are different, but they do pertain to each other, I think. At least that's what the book is proposing, that they pertain to each other. Yeah, because the the book at um, the book at various points seems to uh, to risk or to move towards uh, any number of kind of like sprouting more conventional like narrative pathways. I mean, I'm saying that the book is doing that. I think it's very difficult to know whether you know um, that is embedded in the narrative or is that or, or that simply you know the product of a uh, readerly expectation uh when it comes to 
you know, what we expect from narratives, which of course we're back to Roland Barthes again, you know, <laughs> always. Um, and um, I will admit, you know, as a dreadful old softy, reading uh, various points of the story, this idyllic kind of love story, I mean, that there is there is a kind of like um, the sense of a, of a marriage plot in this novel, but it's... Um, it's told sideways, you know, this this friendship between Helen and Rebbe, uh, there's the sense of why don't they end up together? And you get, you know, the sense that Rebbe might quite have wanted that, but and and Helen declines and then she kind of regrets it. And um and I did find myself, you know, as a as someone who is 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 not so interested in conventional narrative forms apparently, but is also a massive softy, I was kinda like they should get together. Are they going to get together? I know Kit's not going to allow them to get together, but that was cut, that that um, you know potential kind of narrative spin-off was sort of as we've been talking about with mobiles, kind of suspended there as a possibility. But it felt really important for you to go. No, can't have that. We've got to steer with again with the trouble. We've got to steer in this day. We're not going to fly forward into um, some kind of um, other idyll, some you know, uh, uh, other but different idyll uh, in the future. We're going to steer with trying to get through this day. Yeah, I felt you know really key. Yeah, I mean I hope that at the end this sort of ending on expansion, which again is Forster esque. You know, Forster gets kind of taken to task a bit in the book, but also there's so much, so much depth. I think in his his thoughts on what a novel can do, and this idea of expansion, like setting up setting up a a sense of of what writing beyond the ending you know setting up a sense of what could also happen outside of the book while also staying very as you say like like really you know to the point of exhaustion i know i'm risking that you know i'm risking that the from the reader that you know i know we're getting through the day and that there are times of the day where it's like probably it's like come on you know like let's accept, let's collapse this and it's like no we need to go one more one more action, one more activity, because we're still only early afternoon. You know, we have to push it a bit further. It can't be foreshortened because the day is the day is long. They both Helen and Ro- and Rose experience it as as long. It's an exhausting kind of order of day. Um, and I think that suggestion of, I guess, I guess I you know what you say is partly to do with these narrative conventions, but also these um, forms of forms of living that are available to us these templates for how to set how to structure a life like the couple you know the family they're very powerful templates they're very you know i fall in into one i have a you know i have two children and a husband and that's a normative structure that works i've also experienced that when i was younger forms of living together which were I was very lucky to find intensely joyful and um, one in particular where it worked. It was a co-living. None of us were in a relationship with each other, but we were really, really happy for a time. And all of us, this was like maybe in my in my early 20s, but all of us felt that it wasn't going to last. Like I was like, well, I am not going to, you know, in my self-image and sense of what I want for my life, I am moving to Paris 
I don't know anyone in Paris. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, I want to be the kind of person who moves to Paris with like a phone number in my pocket of someone who might be my friend. And then I did that and I broke it. No, I wasn't the only, I broke up that idyll and, and then was intensely lonely for like another, the next two years or something. Because I think in that dynamic, there was a sense of this form of co-living is not the one that we, it's not the stable one. It's not the one that society is telling us is the one that we need to get to. That might be just the marker of my age saying that. Um, but I think that's a very powerful, like, it's, it's I, want, I guess in the novel I wanted to say there are obviously other possibilities. Perhaps Helen couldn't see them or rejected them for reasons of a limit to her own imagination because of the of the of the templates that she'd grown up with or had received as being the ones you should aspire to. Um, and there are other possibilities, but they're also they can be hard won and hard to find and to hold to. And so it's not. Yeah, simple as like, why don't we just, yeah, why don't why doesn't our friendship love transmute into another form of love, a form of couple love? Or why isn't friendship love enough to sustain a form of cohabitation that could last a lifetime and be very happy? Why do we feel like that's somehow a failing? So they have all these questions. It's true, sort of, living in the book. But coming towards the end of our conversation, um... And I feel obliged to attempt to bring things to a close. Um, and perhaps it's it's with that question of, you know, form versus formlessness. Um, I know that you say in this little art that, you know, Roland Barthes uh, loved dichotomies, you know, pairings. And uh, it seems to me that you hate them, you know, <laughs> that, that you can't you can't bear a binary and... and and part of what um, I think that you're doing in this new book and, and what feels so like refreshing and renewing about, you know, the possibilities of the novel, you know, it's such a time-worn and hackneyed discourse, you know, the death of the novel and all that. And and it's the breath of fresh air is to do with, okay, the, the terms of the argument about whether people want to have form or they want to be formless. It's not necessary for this to be an either or question, you know? Um, and maybe it comes back to this thing of rhythm, you know? Form and formlessness is about rhythm. It happens from moment to moment. You can find yourself in a form momentarily and then it can break. It can be lovely to be formless and it can be homely to be formless. You know that that passage where um, Helen becomes a fish <laughs> yeah. and then realizes it's just a wetsuit, you know. I love that. And and it was such a fantastic rendition of the fact that, you know, the, the presumption that we have that um, to be formless is like, you know, the chaos of experience that we long to find order for. And it was like Helen was saying, no, it's not. It's lovely. It's lo I, I belong. I belong in this, you know, in this scattered um, state of formlessness. Um, I don't really know if there's a, a question at the end of that. It's but Jen, you're so it's a beautiful place to end, and that you know I think everything you say was a description of the work. Is you know it's extraordinary to have it given back to me in that way. And you mentioned early on about there being a book in the room with a black and white cover um, 
the book in the room is John Dewey. That's another figure we haven't spoken about, but it's been really important to the writing of this book. It's all not um, not particularly read, not particularly in fashion. I feel as if that matters. Or you know, someone just said to me recently, like no one reads John Dewey really. Um, maybe he's being read again newly, more recently. Anyway, his book of lectures, Art of Art and Experience, are in the room and they're in the book. And um, he has this phrase of falling in and falling out, and how that's what life like is like. That there are these moments of, you know, you find yourself held like in a in a holding position, like the one we have, like on this sofa right now, like the two of us talking, and you feel held and cared for. And it's we have a stillness with moving and talking, but our bodies are still, and it will end, and you know we'll stop recording, and then we'll both go into our days, and and it will collapse, and maybe I'll get stressed on the tube because I've got a wheelie bag in London, <laughs> and I don't, you know, and I'm not used to the tube, and and I'll feel scattered and formless, and then maybe I'll get pick myself up again. And Dewey says all of this in his own manner about art making in receipt and, and art undergoing, you know, receiving the work of art. And I read it and I just thought that is how life feels like to me. And it feels like the novel, because it's long, it can it has the capacity to have moments of holding and containment and stillness and moments of uncontainment and break. And then it can regroup again and pick itself up again. And that also felt to me like a description of what a day living with a unpatterned being is like a being we're into each other we're like vibing with each other I know what you need this is so easy you know and then being like this is really hard <laughs> and yeah so form and formlessness and it not being a, an opposition but of moving from one state to the other ongoingly is like like being alive perfect place to end <laughs> thank you so much Kit this thank has you. been wonderful thank you Jen thank you